He's a cool agent all the time. Hi, the film was Octopussy. Roger Moore. He should have retired several years before that, but he didn't. He went on to make another James Bond film called A View to a Kill with Grace Jones and Christopher Walken. Ah, Christopher Walken. There's a dark character now, Christopher Walken. Let's welcome back to the programme a terrific educator, a broadcaster, a writer, and all-round good guy, Kevin Barrett, truthjihad.com. You'll find him on Substack. You'll find him, well, you'll find him on lots of places. We'll put all the links on the podcast later on. Kevin, welcome back. Hey, hello, Richie. How's it going? It's been, it's going really well. Hey, Christopher Walken, bit of a sinister character, eh? I was reading up, uh, this is completely unrelated to what we're going to talk about now, but I was reading up about the death of Natalie Wood and uh, Robert Wagner. And apparently Christopher Walken was on that, that boat, that, 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 that yacht, the night that Natalie Wood disappeared. It's all very sinister, that Kev. Do you know that story you do? Yeah, you know, I, I remember uh, looking into that many, many years ago when I wrote my very first book in uh, 1994. It was called Dr. Weird's Weird Tours, A Guide to Mysterious San Francisco. And so I, I was taking tourists around by way of this tour guide to the sites where all this bizarre stuff had happened, you know, where Charles Manson's family lived and where the Jefferson Airplane House and where Allen Ginsberg OD'd on peyote buttons and, and started yeah. ranting howl and things like that. And so that scandal was one of the many things I ran into doing that research. Brilliant, Kevin. It's something we might talk about on a future program, just to kind of lighten it up when things get really bad again, Kevin. In a few years' time when it's really bad, just before they're marching us off to the gulags, we need a bit of light relief. Let's get Kevin on to talk about the mysterious um, stories of San Francisco. Let's talk about something very serious. You use Substack. I'm glad you do. I do read you. You can challenge me if you want um, on, on that point. I do read you. I read John Waters as well. I know you know John. I love them. Um, the fact that it's out there. Now, the Anti-Defamation League, which purports to be an organization which looks out for bigotry and tries to protect Jews from hatred and bigotry, um, you sent me a really interesting link from the ADL's own website. It's um, got Substack in its targets, Kevin, in its sites even. Yeah, they're doing their usual thing, which is to attack a platform that's got free speech offering views that they disagree with. And then what they do is they kind of go through trolling for various things that they can grab some quotes mostly out of context. And, you know, they'll find the good, the bad, the ugly and throw it all together. And they'll, they'll say, here's the anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist, Kevin Barrett. And then here's, here's this guy who's claimed that, uh, you know, there are uh, reptiles on Mars with Elvis and you know, whatever. Just throw it all together. Oh, and here's this Nazi who wants to exterminate all whatever. And, uh, then they'll claim, you know, basically what they're trying to do is pressure Substack to get rid of the people that they don't like. And I'm pretty close to the top of that list, and I'm honored because it's been a few years since they paid attention to me, and I was starting to wonder, you know, if they'd forgotten about me. Well, they obviously haven't, and your readership has obviously expanded through Substack. You've always had a very big following when it comes to your broadcasts and stuff like that. I'm going to tell you something that's going to shock you. And I, I'm not here to tell you you um, anything. Our listeners are here to hear you and your experience and your wisdom. But one of the most interesting interviews I ever did was back in 2011. I interviewed Abe Foxman. I had him on. I was working for Talk Radio Europe, and I had him on for about 40 minutes. Now, this is where you're, you're going to tear your hair out, Kevin. There, there isn't a copy of that interview in existence. Back then, the commercial radio station, it kept everything on file for 90 days and then deleted it. 
I didn't keep copies of my own shows at the time. I brought Foxman on because the owner of my radio station was a nice guy called Martin, a Jewish guy as it happened, and a synagogue leader or somebody who, who, who would read and say prayers in the synagogue. And he was very open, Martin, and he would allow me, you know, not allow me, but I would go on the air and talk about Israel. I would say whatever I liked, basically. And Martin was a big free speech champion. And he said, you should get Abe Foxman on from the ADL. And I had this wonderful interview with Abe Foxman, which is the way it used to be, where we kind of battered away at each other for about 40 minutes. And I said to him that his organization was being used to basically chase people who were critical of the state of Israel and to try and tar them and smear them as racists. And, you know, rather than get irate about it and hang up, he stayed on the line and he came back at me. And it was a really good exchange, that. And I, I, it's to my lasting regret that I don't have it anymore. But the reason I'm telling you this story is because somewhere in the last 10, 12, 13 years, we've moved away from a place where people like him and others, whether we agree with them or not, whether we detest them or not, they would at least meet you in a public forum and they would throw their ideas at you and argue against yours. Now it's a case of, well, we don't debate haters and we're going to expend all of our time in getting you booted off the Internet. That's happened in the space of about 12 years, hasn't it? Yeah, I think that's right. Although I think it might have taken a little longer than that. Uh, I personally would put the biggest turning point as uh, 9-11 because... Yeah, but before that, it was a different world. Basically, all of my academic colleagues I ever spoke about the subject with, which was many dozens, agreed that the JFK assassination was probably a coup d'etat. I guess there were a couple who hadn't looked into it, but it wouldn't even, wasn't even controversial. And people in the academy, especially where I was at places like San Francisco State, full of really wild and crazy people, were just doing whatever. And it was just taken for granted that there was pretty much absolute free speech. Some of it I was pretty uncomfortable with. Like I didn't like seeing the NAMBLA, uh, pro pedophilia newspapers in the news boxes all over the Castro neighborhood, which they were. But, uh, hey, you know, people thought, well, free speech is totally absolute. And then 9-11 happened, and everybody was panicked into some kind of irrational fear at a really deeply unconscious level. And I think that the mentality of the West in general and the USA in particular has completely shifted since then. Isn't it amazing when you think back, you had guys like Bill O'Reilly screaming at them, not at, not at people like you, which they did, of course, but screaming at the audience, support the troops or shut the hell up. Do you remember that? Well, I'd uh, never seen anything like that. You know, a, a news guy, you know, allegedly, obviously, shouting at people to shut up, support the troops or shut up. That was scary to me when I saw that years ago. Well, Hannity and O'Reilly actually shouted at me, too, on their shows. Kind yeah, of, I know. Yeah, I, I remember. It's, it's how we met. Yeah. That's right. Jesus, yeah. Kevin. Yeah, that's, that's think, not news. No, and, and, and you're right. Definitely after 9-11. I mean, not to go back to my interview. I don't want to spend too much time in it. But I was able to say to Foxman at the time, I wish, I wish there was a copy of that interview in existence. I've since invited him back saying, saying, you know, you must remember who I am. The, the interview was brokered by a Jewish guy in Marbella. Let's get you back on. And I've never heard back from them. But I was able to say to this guy, look, I don't believe that Israel has the right to exist. I really don't. And I explained why. And I said to him, you don't get to say that I'm anti-Semitic because I believe that. You don't get to, I didn't use the term gaslight because it didn't exist back then. But I said, you don't get to render everything into simple absolutes. I have nothing against Jews. My boss is a Jewish guy. I really like him. My neighbors are Jewish. I don't believe Israel has the right to exist. And I'm entitled to say that without being 
cancelled or called a racist. And he was open to that, like. And that was only 12 years ago, Kevin. Yeah, well, there still are plenty of people open to that, but the overall zeitgeist has shifted, and especially yeah. the mainstream media institutions have changed. You know, I've invited the ADL uh, to come and debate with me or discuss with me whatever they don't like, and I'm willing to hear all of it. I might even admit that they're right about something. I don't know. Uh, I've yeah. repeatedly done that, and, of course, I've never heard back from them. And I'll probably do it again now that they've come after me again, and I unfortunately doubt that the results will be any different. Now, they won't get you off Substack, though, because th this is something you and I have talked about often. Not often, I should say. We've talked about it occasionally, but, but not often enough. How solid is the First Amendment in your country? How reliable is it, Kevin, at the moment? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's getting a little bit rickety, I'm afraid. Uh, the, you know, de facto free speech situation, that is the, the way, uh, free speech is practiced in, in reality is, is not good anymore. And I mean, it, it's, you know, it's had its ups and downs historically, but right now it's really sad that, uh, I, I think that the, the powers that shouldn't be have somehow succeeded in a set, uh, go, they've targeted the left and liberal end of the spectrum which traditionally was the free speech end. The, uh, for instance, the, the American Civil Liberties Union was mostly a bunch of liberals, uh, disproportionately Jewish. According to ADL, I shouldn't ever say anybody is disproportionately Jewish, but yeah, there are some groups, you know, some areas in society that are, and the, the ADL was, and that's all to the credit of Jewish people. Jewish left-leaning and liberal people at that time tended to be overwhelmingly pro-free speech to the extent they would be actually defending the right of Nazis to march right through Skokie, a Jewish neighborhood in Chicago. And now that's all changed. And again, I, I think it does, it starts with 9-11, but then I think the Trump presidency convinced uh, the left liberal side of the spectrum, or maybe it was part of a plot, to, you know, orchestrated plot to get the left liberal side of the spectrum to panic even worse than they panicked over 9-11 and to say, look, we need to restrict freedom because if we uh, continue to be free, then all of this, this lumpen proletariat will keep voting for Trump. And, and that could totally destroy everything. It's the end of the world. So let's start censoring the Internet. And then, of course, COVID came along. And this notion of we have to censor medical misinformation, otherwise millions of people are going to die, panicked the left end of the spectrum and the liberals even more. And so now the left liberal side of the political spectrum is the biggest enemy of free speech. Now, there are uh, honorable exceptions like Glenn Greenwald and Naomi Wolf and so on. But unfortunately, it seems that that's where a lot of the uh, calls for an acceptance of censorship is coming from. Yeah. And you made a very interesting point about about Jewish liberals and their, you know, fastidious um, support of free speech. I remember Montel Williams years ago. He had some Ku Klux Klan kind of leftovers. And there was a Jewish guy there in the audience, a guy who was at one of the colleges in New York. And he said, absolutely, you know, these guys should be allowed to say what it is they want to say. You know, they exist. They have a right to exist. They have a right to their opinions. I trust the authorities will keep them away from me if they ever come uh, and try and get me, but they shouldn't be silenced, they shouldn't be banned. And I thought that was a remarkable attitude, Kevin, at the time, considering some of the things that the KKK, KKK guys were saying about uh, the Jewish guys. Speaking of Trump, right, I have a theory, I'll be as brief as I can, I'll be 15 seconds telling you the theory. Because of guys like you, and I'm not buttering you up, right, because of the work you did post 9-11, because 
until about seven or eight years ago, the internet was largely free. Hello, Richie. Seems like we got cut off. That's odd. Wonder if I should hang up and call it call again. Kevin, thanks for that. Do you know what's happening here in the state today? Um, one of the biggest internet providers is Virgin Media, and it's had huge outages all over the country. It keeps coming out and coming in, so apologies for that, right? Yeah, and here I, I mean, thought it was the ADL. Yeah, the ADL, yeah, you see. This time it's not them. Let me um summarize what I was saying to you. I'll be I'll be I'll be brief. Because the internet was was very open up until about six, seven years ago. And because of the work of guys like you and in the early days Alex Jones and others, people and after nine eleven, people began to see through the charade, the the the, the they, they began to see that the, the game was rigged and it didn't matter which politician they put in the White House or in Downing Street. They began to see that and they became disenfranchised because of the internet and that was a good thing. I think the elites, whatever we want to call them, I think they gave us Donald Trump because of that. They needed to re-engage people in the political drama, in the theatre. And that's a very simplistic, what I've just said there is very simplistic. But I think it has some merit. Do you go along with that in any way? Yes, and, and I would expand on that. I think that Sam Husseini is right, that Trump is the opposable thumb of the establishment. So I, I think that he was deliberately inserted in power by a coalition of establishment forces, not least of which is the state of Israel. And uh, Sam Husseini has also done good work on his substack, which apparently the ADL doesn't want to publicize about that, uh, that Trump made a deal with uh, with Netanyahu's representatives in the summer of 2016. And that was the key thing that put, put him into the White House. Now, he, there's also other segments of the establishment supported him as well, of course. And that was deliberate. Uh, as you say, I think they did want to revive the spectacle. And they also wanted to discredit anti-establishment thinking and populist thinking and what they consider conspiracy theories, starting, of course, with 9-11, the most important one and the most obviously true one. And so Trump was used to discredit all of those uh, lines of thought among the half-educated, that is the left liberal so-called intelligentsia, uh, the people who work for the uh, universities and the media. So, yeah, I agree with you. I, th I think the Trump presidency is far from a uh, pure anti-establishment insurgency. It's rather an operation that had elements of an insurgency, but was also actually covertly supported by elements of the establishment. And they've used it for their own purposes, above all, this Internet censorship. That's very well put, Kevin. I was saying this in 2015, but nowhere near as eloquently as you are saying it now. And obviously, I lost some listeners at the time, you know, because people thought, well, Richie, you should be delighted with Donald J. Trump and some of the things he's saying. And I pointed out to my listeners at, at the time, Kevin, I said, well, I don't believe him. This is this this is the issue. I don't believe him and I don't believe he's real. And I'm wide open to the Israel angle because, I mean, if 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 moles exist, well, Jared Kushner is one gigantic mole, isn't he? Oh, yeah, of course. And, and Roger Stone actually was apparently the guy who cut the deal with the Israelis. And the whole Russiagate thing was a big distraction from that. There was really nothing to Russiagate or, or not much to it. But uh, Roger Stone was the one who was in touch with his Israeli handlers. And this has actually been reported now in a relatively mainstream publication in The Nation just, uh, I think, a few weeks ago or, or less. Uh, they had a story out detailing how Roger Stone uh, played intermediary between uh, Netanyahu and his people and Trump. 
and uh, basically handed the 2016 election to him with the Russiagate aspect being secondary. And today, this, this uh, theater, this circus, as we, we would call it, it's in full flow again today with this appearance in New York where he's being indicted, apparently 30-something felony counts. And I, I, I look, I, I'm certainly no genius, and I, I always caveat everything I say by saying that this is just my opinion. I think people like to hear that. It's just my opinion. But it, 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 it couldn't look more staged than what's happening in New York today. And all of his followers, you know, coming down Fourth Avenue, walking down, heading for the courthouse, just one massive spectacle to rile them all up again. They'll believe that he's, he's the Messiah. The people who don't like him will believe he's the Antichrist. And all that really matters is they stay engaged and they can't wait to get out and vote next time, Kevin. Well, you know, what I thought was going to happen, Richie, was I figured Trump would sort of drive up to the police station where he's supposed to surrender, and then he would take off, and he would lead uh, a car chase like the OJ thing with, uh, you know, helicopters, media and police helicopters following him, and hundreds of uh, of squad cars following him all over New York for a couple of hours, and then he could surrender, and, you know, that, but, I mean, that's the kind of thing Trump would do. Couldn't you, Kevin, isn't it a shame he didn't do that? Could you imagine? I'd be glued to it. I if don't he had care. me as his advisor, man, he, he would have. Uh, <laughs> come on, Trump, hire me. <laughs> Mr. Trump, this is the way it goes. Get into, get into a Camaro, get into, I don't know, a Ford, get into a Mustang Donald and just go for it. <laughs> Central Park. Absolutely amazing. But yeah, and, and, um, that's madness, isn't it? And you've got a, a president in place at the moment who genuinely looks unwell and sounds unwell and can't read the autocue. I don't like laughing at this because I'm pretty fond of older people and I'm not saying that to curry favour with older people. My favourite people in the world are septuagenarians and octogenarians who've lived a bit, who can give you a bit of advice and have got great stories to tell. But it's so bizarre, Kevin, to see Biden shuffle around, you know, and, and that, that, that he is the President of the United States. Again, it's almost like the elites like to laugh and joke and take the piss use that great British uh, term out of us by let's give them this creepy old man whose faculties are gone and we'll tell them he's the president and we'll all have a good laugh, you know? It does seem that way. And it, it seems like Biden's presidency is almost a sort of a metaphor for the state of the empire. You know, the U.S. empire is a is doddering and decrepit as well and has made all kinds of incredibly stupid moves. And of course, Biden has presided over one of the most stupid, which is inciting this war in Ukraine. All of this is backfiring. It's a great article by Ron Unz that came out yesterday, uh, succinctly expressing the sorts of things I've been saying for quite some time, that the neocons have run the U.S. empire off the cliff. They've been strategically uh, just beyond stupid in picking fights with Russia, China, and Iran all at the same time. You don't do that. And, and as Ron Unz points out in his article, Brzezinski was actually a pretty smart strategist, had warned against this in his book, The Grand Chessboard, published in 1997. But... These guys, uh, apparently they're so arrogant that they, or, or else they're just drunk on their own propaganda. So they're, they're just uh, going nuts and, and, you know, attacking everybody. And what they've done is they've created a, an anti-American, anti-West coalition of Russia, China, Iran, and now most of the non-Western world is joining it. Saudi Arabia has announced it's now, you know, getting out of dollars and, and trading primarily with China, making peace with Iran, which the Americans, of course, didn't want. Brazil is now getting out of dollars. Um, India is getting out of dollars. Everybody's still trading with the Russians despite the sanctions. So the empire is just as doddering and decrepit as Joe Biden. 
You are listening to the academic, the broadcaster, author and researcher, Kevin Barrett. Kevin, I, I said to Paul Craig Roberts a few weeks ago, in fact, he was on with me yesterday, but he was on with me six or eight weeks or 12 weeks ago or something like that. And he, I, I, I love Paul because you never know which Paul you're going to get when you speak with him. You know, sometimes he's a bit grumpy, which I like because it's a great back and forth when he's a bit grumpy. But he was really kind of thoughtful this particular day. He's always intelligent. And I try to needle him by, by saying something which I do believe and I can't prove, of course. I said to him, I believe that we're meant to think that this it's a big mistake on behalf of the U.S., to be picking fights with China, Iran and Russia, it seems that way. And better men than me, including my, my guest Kevin Barrett today, believe this. But what if every single one of them is a player in the Great Reset game? What if Putin is controlled by forces, you know, working towards the same aims as the people who control Joe Biden? And I was hoping to kind of needle Paul. I hope he's not listening to this um, because he's great when he's a bit grumpy. And he said to me really quietly, he said, I hope you're wrong, Richie, because if you're wrong, we're screwed. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I have no idea whether there is some kind of force out there that can exert that kind of power over all of these different capitals, including these seemingly independent ones. I mean, it's obvious that the U.S. empire exerts tremendous force and power over the European capitals, for example, uh, over Japan, which is still occupied and yeah. so that that we can see it's it's and Germany and Germany is the most occupied of the European countries, of course, but they're all pretty occupied at this point. So is there some other force that is totally unseen that is maybe even more in control? And there are all kinds of speculations about this from, you know, international banking syndicates to uh, extraterrestrials and everything in between. Uh, and. I just haven't seen enough evidence to believe that. So I guess I'm, I'm with, uh, with, uh, Paul Craig Roberts on that one. That's it. I, I hope that's not true, but yeah, I, I wouldn't I, be I, that surprised. I hope it's not true either. I really do. I hope it's not true because there, there's no way out of it then. It's inevitable. This technocratic, dystopian, horrible society they want to create where we're scanned and stalked and surveilled from morning till, till nighttime. Cashless Kevin. You must be seeing this. You're a little bit older than I am. I was in a corner shop here the other day and I don't see it too often, but when I see it, it really makes my heart sink. I see youngsters ahead of me paying for chocolate, uh, bars of chocolate with the phone, Kevin. And I think they don't realise the dangers of it, you know? Yeah, I see people wandering around, staring at their phones, looking like zombies in a George Romero film. I'm yeah. the last man on earth without a cell phone pretty much and I couldn't survive without my wife so I shouldn't brag but yeah I I'm also very uh, alienated by you know the way technology has transformed humanity in mostly a bad way it seems to me overall I think things were better when I was younger back in you know the second half of the 20th century and and this century has really been a washout so far and all of these wonderful technological advances actually make life worse rather than better you know my father actually said this about email when it first came in he said this is a terrible invention people are gonna have to spend so much of their lives just answering and responding to emails um it would be better if it didn't exist he also said that the privatization of the telephone companies was terrible breaking up ma bell into lots of little companies even if the prices go down and stuff 
ultimately, you're, you'd be much better off if you had a sort of a transparent public utility like Ma Bell was. And indeed, I think the, the world got worse. It got more confused there. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I think technology is, is overall uh, making things worse. And whether we're ever going to get smart enough to be able to collectively reject some new technology like AI, for example, which its own inventors say, ha- half of them say that there's a 10% chance it's going to lead to human extinction. So even Yuval Harari, the uh, extremist, you know, transhumanist techno freak, is writing front page op-eds for the New York Times begging AI to be put on hold. Well, I don't, I don't know if it's something that I don't think AI is under enough control to uh, to put itself on hold. And apparently, these people who are doing the research who think that they're risking human extinction are evil enough that they're willing to keep doing that work. So, boy, I, it's it's kind of a sad comment on our species that we put up with all of this. Funny you say this about um, AI. Wasn't it only late last year that somebody working for Google, Kevin, believed that the bot he was conversing with was sentient, was actually conscious? That was last year, wasn't it? Yes. You know, I, I just wrote a piece uh, sort of picking up on and running that, running with that. You know, I I suggested that from my point of view, the two real problems with AI are first that it's basically a lie machine because it's pretending to be a human. It's That's what it's programmed to do, is to try to imitate human thought and human speech, but it's not a human, so by definition, it's lying. In the same way that when a, uh, a computer voice calls you up and tries to convince you it's a human that wants to sell you something, that it, there's a lie at the basis of that telephone call, because it's not a human being. But they try to make it look like it's a human being, just you know, like when they send you junk mail with apparent handwriting on it. That's all lies, and you should be very angry at anybody who lies to you in that way. So we should, you should be very angry at everybody involved in developing this kind of AI because it's based on the lie of creating a lie machine that lies to you by telling you that it's human when it's not. And so we're baking these lie machines. That's bad enough. But then there is the possibility that they're going to be infested by demonic jinn. Now, Richie, don't don't start laughing at me because... I'm not going to laugh. Yeah, they, a lot of people uh, don't buy into this notion that there are there is such a thing as disembodied spirits, but a lot of people do in many cases because they've actually run into them firsthand. And Malachi Martin, the former Vatican exorcist, has written extensively about his uh, practice. And those who read that would probably, you know, either say he has to be lying, or yeah, there are these disembodied spirits, and a lot of them are really not very nice. And I, I mentioned in my article that I know a guy who was involved with a Ouija board seance thing with when he was a kid. And the Ouija board told them that so-and-so, one of their classmates, was going to die. And then, sure enough, the kid died shortly thereafter. And they were so creeped out and wondering whether the kid died because of their Ouija experience. Well, a Ouija board is just a bunch of bits of language that are being sort of assembled half randomly and a half with a certain amount of human intervention. But it's ultimately out of human control. This exact same thing is true of AI. And so... If a Ouija board can get infested by a spirit, how about an AI program? So that's another uh, problem. Why would we want to build a lie machine that is open to being infested by what could become satanic jinn or evil spirits? I've never done this as many times in an interview. I talk about myself. My listeners might laugh at this point, but I don't. I don't ever do that. I did several interviews, a series, some years ago with a guy called Father Vince Lampard. You know who he is, Kevin? Uh, I'm forgetting. I heard the name, but I can't remember. Yeah, you, you, you definitely have. He is the only appointed Catholic Church exorcist in the United States. 
and he's in New York and he is the most genial, easygoing, chatty and uh, approachable gentleman. And he'd be a fantastic guest for you on your show uh, with, with Father Vince. I brought him on initially when I was in Spain and then he did an interview with me in London on TPV. And I've had him on this show twice, but not for years. And he explained to me what, what happens during during an exorcism. And we talked about it. And then I found out later on that when, um, I don't know if it's an, an imam, Kevin, but who in Islam would perform an exorcism? But Vince was telling me it's exactly the same procedure, basically. The language will differ. But the demonic entity comes out the crown of the head. Is that right? That's where they pull this thing out of the head. And he described some of this, Kevin, and uh, I believe them. I believed every word he told me, to be honest. Right. Well, so imagine if we create these really brilliant lie machines that can get infested yeah. with these kinds of really nasty, uh, <laughs> off-world, what do you wear, you know, extra-dimensional entities. Uh, that, that wouldn't be so good. So, again, this is a kind of, you know, of course, that's somewhat speculative, but still... It seems to me that this is obviously one of those technologies that just shouldn't be developed or at least should be paused for several centuries. Well, I want to finish with this, if you don't mind. And um, you are listening to Kevin Barrett, by the way. Kevin will tell you in a moment where you, you need to go to find him. That's in the unlikely event that you haven't heard of Kevin. I'm sure you've heard of Kevin. But if you're new to these types of programs, Kevin will tell you in a minute where to go. Kevin Barrett, the academic, the broadcaster and uh, the writer, of course, the author. Um, you will, probably will have come across in your travels Richard D. Hall. Um, I'm not the biggest fan, but it doesn't matter. I'm not here to bash the lad. I have nothing against him whatsoever. He never did me any harm at all. Um, it's styles. Styles make, you know, for interesting things. And not for me, I don't think. But anyhow, there's a case here. Um, it, it kind of echoes the Alex Jones case. They're coming after Richard D. Hall here. They're suing him for defamation people who were injured at the Manchester Arena bombing back in 2017. I'm sure you will have been made aware of this by now, and I'm sure you'll have thoughts on it. What do you do? You think? Because I think this is, for me, it's this is the simplistic, again, way of looking at it. But the, the news is tightening now on freedom of expression and on free speech everywhere in the world. And I think we here in the UK are in the crosshairs maybe more than most other places in the world at the moment. So they're saying to him that um, he's being sued for defamation, could lose everything, because he said that an event, uh, you, you know, a big event, an attack, a, b- a bombing at the arena didn't happen. What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first off, I think that when people are investigating these kinds of things, it's really a good idea to try to be congenial with everybody that you deal with, you know, and... and Rather than coming at them and, oh, you're a liar, you didn't, you weren't really injured by this, you didn't really lose your child at Sandy Hook, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, that's not how I would reach out to those people because you're really asking for trouble when you do that. And part of the trouble, I think, that some of these people have gotten into, I, I haven't studied the Manchester case closely enough. I remember when it happened, looking into it and finding uh, suspicious details about it, foreknowledge issues and such, but I, I don't remember those details right now. Um, but in general, I do think that this notion that uh, nobody died, uh, nothing ever happened, that that meme has been spread by uh, the Cass Sunsteins of the world, that is, the cognitive infiltrating uh, disinformation entities uh, often related to intelligence agencies, 
in order to precisely create this kind of scenario where they can demonize the truth movement by saying that these truthers are a bunch of deniers who are causing immense pain to the survivors of these events by harassing them. And anybody who investigates these kinds of events by jumping to the conclusion that nothing happened and then sort of harassing somebody who claims to have been victimized by that event is really setting themselves up and setting the truth movement up for really bad results. So um, I, I don't know the details, again, about this Manchester case and Richard Hall, but I would, uh, just from what little I've seen about it, it, it looks to me like maybe he did make a mistake in the way he pursued his inquiry. And I think people should be really cautious about this because the bad guys really want you to run around saying that, no, there's no such thing as viruses. COVID doesn't exist. Nobody died at Sandy Hook. Nobody died on 9-11. Nobody died in Manchester, yada, yada, yada. That's what they want you to say uh, because it discredits the truth movement. Yeah, and, and my my issue with, um, with um, guys like Richard, say, even though I don't know the chap, I've never had an exchange with him. I have nothing against him. Why would I? Um, we don't move in the same circles, I, I, I don't do what he does and, and vice versa, is that they don't leave any room at all for the possibility that they might not have all of the facts. Yes, Salman Abedi is an incredibly curious and sinister character. His father, Ramadan Abedi, was paid by MI6 to assassinate Gaddafi. How ironic that it should be his son that blew himself up at the arena. There are a thousand things wrong with the story. But it doesn't mean that an explosion didn't go off somewhere at the arena. And I happen to know, personally, one of the nurses who worked at the Royal Infirmary that night and treated people there, Kevin. People got injured there. There's no doubt about that. That doesn't mean that something happened there and, you know, that, that, a, that a different spin was put on it by the government for another, for another agenda. But um, you've got to leave yourself room for being wrong. I said this to Alex Jones. I used to speak to Alex regularly, regularly. He would come on with me and he had me on Infowars and I butted heads with him about Sandy Hook. I said, I'm pretty sure that Lenny Posner's son died in, 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 in that school, Alex. You know, I, I can't, I don't think this guy is lying. Now, it doesn't mean that the shooting itself isn't sinister, that it was maybe carried out by somebody else. But you've got to leave yourself room. The problem with these guys, Kevin, is they leave no room whatsoever. It's either black or white. Life is not like that. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think there's also an element of sort of one-upsmanship that, you know, once you go down the rabbit hole and you see how extreme everything is and how badly you're being lied to, there's a tendency to sort of start competing with the other people in the rabbit hole to see, you know, who can be the most radical. And so kind of the ultimate radical position in these cases is to sort of be ultimately denialist and to say, you know, nothing happened, nobody died, it's all a big hoax. And there's a temptation to do that because, you know, you're being lied to so badly that you want to just say, reject everything and say it's all a lie. But in so many of these cases, there really is a bomb that went off. In Boston, for example, the Boston Marathon bombing, I'm pretty sure a bomb really did go off despite the work of people like Jim Fetzer and others who've claimed that it didn't. And, uh, so I, I, you know, in a way it's kind of, it would be a compliment to the orchestrators of these events if they were so humanitarian that they didn't want to kill anybody. But I don't think that's the case. I think they were, they're perfectly willing to kill all kinds of people. And I think they did kill nearly 3,000 people on 9-11. And, uh, they killed a huge number of little kids in the daycare center in the Oklahoma City bombing. 
uh, and on and on and on. And so I, I'm really not convinced that there is much validity to this sort of nobody died uh, trope. There may or may be some case, you know, one of these cases, maybe it's true, but I haven't seen any that I'm where I'm convinced that uh, there was a completely fake event and nobody died. Well, as we discussed in the past, it's much easier for the orchestrators of these events to actually kill people, isn't it? It's much more simple. Why, why, why would you use crisis actors for a start? Why would you use them all the time? Look, I'm willing to. I, I'm open-minded to the idea that crisis actors were used in the past. Of course, I'm open-minded to that. Of course, it's possible. But it's much easier to just kill people. As you, you said it yourself. You summed it up beautifully. As if they're concerned about killing people. Killing people is what they do, Kevin. Yeah, that's right. And in a lot of these cases, we know that they kill people. And the, and the people who are experts in creating these kinds of events are professional killers. Like in Iran, I, I visited Tehran a couple of months ago and talked to some professors who were studying what's been going on with the destabilization of Iran. And what they said was that the uh, usual suspects create these demonstrations. They use their power at social media, plus lots of money. They distribute vast amounts of money to pay people to create these like anti-hijab you know, hijab law demonstrations and things like that. They're able to usually get maybe a few dozen or a hundred people out there. And then they have their mechanics, their, you know, their professional uh, killers, in, mixed in with the demonstration. And then they shoot the demonstrators point blank from behind. And then they even randomly just kill people up to blocks away from the demonstration. They call it taking the toll because now they get a death toll to report in the Western media saying that the evil Iranian police who are pressing the poor hijab, non, you know, hijab wearing women are uh, killing all of these demonstrators when in fact the entire thing was orchestrated by these professional killers. And they definitely do kill people. They have absolutely no compunction. They seem to actually enjoy it. So the idea that they would do a nobody died operation strikes me as pretty dubious from the get go. Dubious and time um, time constraints on that and labour intensive when just kill people. Kevin, um, we didn't even talk about Morocco. Let's do that next time because I'm fascinated by that. Um, and of course, regards to Rabia, but where can people who are brand new to this type of programme, where should they go to find Kevin Barrett? Well, I suppose the best place is kevinbarrett.substack.com. And then they can also, if, if you want to make a donation to me, you can PayPal to truthjihad at gmail.com. And I always say to listeners, and I mean it, if you, um, you, if you listen to Kevin, if you, or anybody, and you listen to them regularly, and you're getting something out of that, put your hand in your pocket and support it 100%. KevinBarrett.substack.com. Kevin, thanks for coming back on, and thanks for understanding about yesterday. Um, that was a whole other crazy day. Today's an even crazier day with all these internet problems here in the UK, but um, it held together for us. So uh, love having you on, pal. I look forward to next time. Likewise, Richie. It's always good to talk with you. Thanks, Kevin. Bye for now. The great